Volume two, chapter three of The Last Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine Blashford. www.sidepodcast.com. The Last Man by Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Volume three, chapter two. In the autumn of this year, 2096, the spirit of emigration crept in among the few survivors who, congregating from various parts of England, met in London. This spirit existed as a breath, a wish, a far-off thought, until communicated to Adrian, who imbibed it with ardour and instantly engaged himself in plans for its execution. The fear of immediate death vanished with the heats of September. Another winter was before us, and we might elect our mode of passing it to the best advantage. Perhaps in rational philosophy none could be better chosen than this scheme of migration, which would draw us from the immediate scene of our woe, and, leading us through pleasant and picturesque countries, amuse for a time our despair. The idea once broached, all were impatient to put it in execution. We were still at Windsor. Our renewed hopes medicined the anguish we had suffered from the late tragedies. The death of many of our inmates had weaned us from the fond idea that Windsor Castle was a spot sacred from the plague. But our lease of life was renewed for some months, and even Idris lifted her head as a lily after a storm, when a last sunbeam tinges its silver cup. Just at this time Adrian came down to us. His eager looks showed us that he was full of some scheme. He hastened to take me aside and disclosed to me with rapidity his plan of emigration from England. To leave England for ever, to turn from its polluted fields and groves, and, placing the sea between us, to quit it, as a sailor quits the rock on which he has been wrecked, when the saving ship rides by. Such was his plan. To leave the country of our fathers, made holy by their graves, we could not feel, even as a voluntary exile of old, who might for pleasure or convenience forsake his native soil, though thousands of miles might divide him. England was still a part of him, as he of her. He heard of the passing events of the day, he knew that if he returned and resumed his place in society, the entrance was still open, and it required but the will to surround himself at once with the associations and habits of boyhood. Not so with us, the remnant. We left none to represent us, none to repeople the desert land, and the name of England died when we left her, in vagabond pursuit of dreadful safety. Yet let us go, England is in her shroud, we may not enchain ourselves to a corpse. Let us go, the world is our country now, and we will choose for our residence its most fertile spot. Shall we, in these desert halls, under this wintry sky, sit with closed eyes and folded hands, expecting death? Let us rather go out to meet it gallantly, or, perhaps, for all this pendulous orb, this fair gem in the sky's diadem, is not surely plague-stricken. Perhaps, in some secluded nook, amidst eternal spring and waving trees and purling streams, we may find life. The world is vast, and England, though her many fields and widespread woods seem interminable, is but a small part of her. At the close of a day's march over high mountains and through snowy valleys, we may come upon health, and, committing our loved ones to its charge, replant the uprooted tree of humanity, and send to late posterity the tale of the anti-pestilential race, the heroes and sages of the lost state of things. Hope beckons and sorrow urges us, the heart beats high with expectation, and this eager desire of change must be an omen of success. Oh, come, farewell to the dead, farewell to the tombs of those we loved, farewell to giant London and the placid Thames, to river and mountain or fair district, birthplace of the wise and good, to Windsor Forest and its antique castle, farewell. Themes for story alone are they, we must live elsewhere. Such were in part the arguments of Adrian uttered with enthusiasm and unanswerable rapidity. Something more was in his heart, to which he dared not give words. He felt that the end of time was come, he knew that one by one we should dwindle into nothingness. 
It was not advisable to wait this sad consummation in our native country, but travelling would give us that object for each day, that would distract our thoughts from the swift approaching end of things. If we went to Italy, to sacred and eternal Rome, we might with greater patience submit to the decree which had laid her mighty towers low. We might lose our selfish grief in the sublime aspect of its desolation. All this was in the mind of Adrian, but he thought of my children, and, instead of communicating to me these resources of despair, he called up the image of health and life to be found, where we knew not, when we knew not, but if never to be found, for ever and for ever to be sought, he won me over to his party, heart and soul. It devolved on me to disclose our plan to Idris. The images of health and hope which I presented to her made her with a smile consent. With a smile she agreed to leave her country, from which she had never before been absent, and the spot she had inhabited from infancy, the forest and its mighty trees, the woodland paths and green recesses, where she had played in childhood, and had lived so happily through youth, she would leave them without regret, for she hoped to purchase thus the lives of her children. They were her life, dearer than a spot consecrated to love, dearer than all else the earth contained. The boys heard with childish glee of our removal. Clara asked if we were to go to Athens. "'It is possible,' I replied, and her countenance became radiant with pleasure. There she would behold the tomb of her parents, and the territory filled with recollections of her father's glory. In silence but without respite she had brooded over these scenes. It was the recollection of them that had turned her infant gaiety to seriousness, and had impressed her with high and restless thoughts. There were many dear friends whom we must not leave behind, humble though they were. There was the spirited and obedient steed which Lord Raymond had given his daughter. There was Alfred's dog and a pet eagle, whose sight was dimmed through age. But this catalogue of favourites to be taken with us could not be made without grief to think of our heavy losses, and a deep sigh for the many things we must leave behind. The tears rushed into the eyes of Idris, while Alfred and Evelyn bought now a favourite rose-tree, now a marble vase beautifully carved, insisting that these must go, and exclaiming on the pity that we could not take the castle and the forest, the deer and the birds, and all accustomed and cherished objects along with us. Fond and foolish ones, I said, we have lost for ever treasures far more precious than these, and we desert them to preserve treasures to which in comparison they are nothing. Let us not for a moment forget our object and our hope, and they will form a resistless mound to stop the overflowing of our regret for trifles. The children were easily distracted, and again returned to their prospect of future amusement. Idris had disappeared. She had gone to hide her weakness, escaping from the castle. She had descended to the little park and sought solitude, that she might there indulge her tears. I found her clinging round an old oak, pressing its rough trunk with her roseate lips, as her tears fell plenteously, and her sobs and broken exclamations could not be suppressed. With surpassing grief I beheld this loved one of my heart, thus lost in sorrow. I drew her towards me, and as she felt my kisses on her eyelids, as she felt my arms press her, she revived to the knowledge of what remained to her. "'You are very kind not to reproach me,' she said. "'I weep, and a bitter pang of intolerable sorrow tears my heart. And yet I am happy. Mothers lament their children, wives lose their husbands, while you and my children are left to me. Yes, I am happy, most happy, that I can weep thus for imaginary sorrows, and that the slight loss of my adored country is not dwindled and annihilated in mightier misery. Take me where you will, where you and my children are, there shall be Windsor, and every country will be England to me. Let these tears flow not for myself, happy and ungrateful as I am, but for the dead world, for our lost country, for all of love and life and joy, now choked in the dusty chambers of death. She spoke quickly, as if to convince herself. She turned her eyes from the trees and forest paths she loved. She hid her face in my bosom, and we, yes, my masculine firmness dissolved. We wept together, consolatory tears, and then calm, nay, almost cheerful, we returned to the castle. The first cold weather of an English October made us hasten our preparations. I persuaded Idris to go up to London, where she might better attend to necessary arrangements. I did not tell her that to spare her the pang of parting from inanimate objects, now the only things left, I had resolved that we should none of us return to Windsor. 
For the last time we looked on the wide extent of country visible from the terrace, and saw the last rays of the sun tinge the dark masses of wood variegated by autumnal tints. The uncultivated fields and smokeless cottages lay in shadow below. The Thames wound through the wide plain, and the venerable pile of Eton College stood in dark relief, a prominent object, the cawing of the myriad rooks which inhabited the trees of the little park, as in column or thick wedge they speeded to their nests, disturbed the silence of the evening. Nature was the same, as when she was the kind mother of the human race, now, childless and forlorn, her fertility was a mockery, her loveliness a mask for deformity. Why should the breeze gently stir the trees? Man felt not its refreshment. Why did dark night adorn herself with stars? Man saw them not. Why are there fruits or flowers or streams? Man is not here to enjoy them. Idris stood beside me, her dear hand locked in mine. Her face was radiant with a smile. The sun is alone, she said, but we are not. A strange star, my Lionel, ruled our birth, sadly, and with dismay we may look upon the annihilation of man, but we remain for each other. Did I ever in the wide world seek other than thee? And since in the wide world thou remainest, why should I complain? Thou and nature are still true to me. Beneath the shades of night and through the day, whose garish light displays our solitude, thou wilt still be at my side, and even Windsor will not be regretted. I had chosen night-time for our journey to London, that the change and desolation of the country might be the less observable. Our only surviving servant drove us. We passed down the steep hill and entered the dusky avenue of the long walk. At times like these, minute circumstances assumed giant and majestic proportions. The very swinging open of the white gate that admitted us into the forest arrested my thoughts as matter of interest. It was an everyday act, never to occur again. The setting crescent of the moon glittered through the massy trees to our right, and when we entered the park we scared a troop of deer that fled bounding away in the forest shades. Our two boys quietly slept. Once before our road turned from the view, I looked back on the castle. Its windows glistened in the moonshine, and its heavy outline lay in a dark mass against the sky. The trees near us waved a solemn dirge to the midnight breeze. Idris leaned back in the carriage, her two hands pressed mine, her countenance was placid, she seemed to lose the sense of what she now left, in the memory of what she still possessed. My thoughts were sad and solemn, yet not of unmingled pain. The very excess of our misery carried a relief with it, giving sublimity and elevation to sorrow. I felt that I carried with me those I best loved. I was pleased, after a long separation, to rejoin Adrian, never again to part. I felt that I quitted what I loved, not what loved me. The castle walls and long familiar trees did not hear the parting sound of our carriage-wheels with regret, and while I felt Idris to be near and heard the regular breathing of my children, I could not be unhappy. Clara was greatly moved, with streaming eyes suppressing her sobs, she leaned from the window, watching the last glimpse of her native Windsor. Adrian welcomed us on our arrival. He was all animation. You could no longer trace in his look of health the suffering valetudinarian. From his smile and sprightly tones you could not guess that he was about to lead forth from their native country, the numbered remnant of the English nation, into the tenantless realms of the South, there to die one by one, till the last man should remain in the voiceless empty world. Adrian was impatient for our departure, and had advanced far in his preparations. His wisdom guided all. His care was the soul to move the luckless crowd who relied wholly on him. It was useless to provide many things, for we should find abundant provision in every town. It was Adrian's wish to prevent all labour, to bestow a festive appearance on this funeral train. Our numbers amounted to not quite two thousand persons. These were not all assembled in London, but each day witnessed the arrival of fresh numbers, and those who resided in the neighbouring towns had received orders to assemble at one place on the 20th of November. Carriages and horses were provided for all, captains and under-officers chosen, and the whole assemblage wisely organised. All obeyed the Lord Protector of dying England, all looked up to him. His council was chosen, it consisted of about fifty persons. Distinction and station were not the qualifications of their election. We had no station among us, but that which benevolence and prudence gave, no distinction save between the living and the dead. 
Although we were anxious to leave England before the depth of winter, yet we were detained. Small parties had been dispatched to various parts of England, in search of stragglers. We would not go, until we had assured ourselves that in all human probability we did not leave behind a single human being. On our arrival in London we found that the aged Countess of Windsor was residing with her son in the palace of the Protectorate. We repaired to her accustomed abode near Hyde Park. Idris now for the first time for many years saw her mother, anxious to assure herself that the childishness of old age did not mingle with unforgotten pride, to make this high-born dame still so inveterate against me. Age and care had furrowed her cheeks and bent her form, but her eye was still bright, her manners authoritative and unchanged. She received her daughter coldly, but displayed more feeling as she folded her grandchildren in her arms. It is our nature to wish to continue our systems and thoughts to posterity through our own offspring. The Countess had failed in this design with regard to her children. Perhaps she hoped to find the next remove in birth more tractable. Once Idris named me casually, a frown, a convulsive gesture of anger, shook her mother, and with voice trembling with hate she said, I am of little worth in this world, the young are impatient to push the old off the scene, but Idris, if you do not wish to see your mother expire at your feet, never again name that person to me. All else I can bear, and now I am resigned to the destruction of my cherished hopes, but it is too much to require that I should love the instrument that Providence gifted with murderous properties for my destruction. This was a strange speech, now that, on the empty stage, each might play his part without impediment from the other, but the haughty ex-queen thought as Octavius Caesar and Mark Antony, we could not stall together in the whole world. The period of our departure was fixed for the 25th of November. The weather was temperate, soft rains fell at night, and by day the wintry sun shone out. Our numbers were to move forward in separate parties and to go by different routes, all to unite at last at Paris. Adrian and his division, consisting in all of five hundred persons, were to take the direction of Dover and Calais. On the 20th of November, Adrian and I rode for the last time through the streets of London. They were grass-grown and desert. The open doors of the empty mansions creaked upon their hinges. Rank herbage and deforming dirt had swiftly accumulated on the steps of the houses. The voiceless steeples of the churches pierced the smokeless air. The churches were open, but no prayer was offered at the altars. Mildew and damp had already defaced their ornaments. Birds and tame animals, now homeless, had built nests and made their lairs in consecrated spots. We passed St. Paul's. London, which had extended so far in suburbs in all direction, had been somewhat deserted in the midst, and much of what had in former days obscured this vast building was removed. Its ponderous mass, blackened stone and high dome, made it look not like a temple but a tomb. Methought above the portico was engraved the hick jacet of England. We passed on eastwards, engaged in such solemn talk as the times inspired. No human step was heard, nor human form discerned. Troops of dogs, deserted of their masters, passed us, and now and then a horse, unbridled and unsaddled, trotted towards us, and tried to attract the attention of those which we rode, as if to allure them to seek like liberty. An unwieldy ox, who had fed in an abandoned granary, suddenly lowed and shooed his shapeless form in the narrow doorway. Everything was desert, but nothing was in ruin, and this medley of undamaged buildings and luxurious accommodation, in trim and fresh youth, was contrasted with the lonely silence of the unpeopled streets. Night closed in, and it began to rain. We were about to return homewards when a voice, a human voice, strange now to hear, attracted our attention. It was a child singing a merry, lightsome air. There was no other sound. We had traversed London from Hyde Park, even to where we now were in the minories, and had met no person, heard no voice, nor footstep. The singing was interrupted by laughing and talking. Never was merry ditty so sadly timed, never laughter more akin to tears. The door of the house from which these sounds proceeded was open, the upper rooms were illuminated as for a feast. It was a large, magnificent house, in which doubtless some rich merchant had lived. The singing again commenced, and rang through the high-roofed rooms, while we silently ascended the staircase. Lights now appeared to guide us, and a long suite of splendid rooms illuminated made us still more wonder. 
Their only inhabitant, a little girl, was dancing, waltzing, and singing about them, followed by a large Newfoundland dog, who boisterously jumping on her and interrupting her made her now scold, now laugh, now throw herself on the carpet to play with him. She was dressed grotesquely in glittering robes and shawls fit for a woman. She appeared about ten years of age. We stood at the door looking on this strange scene till the dog perceiving us barked loudly. The child turned and saw us. Her face, losing its gaiety, assumed a sullen expression. She slunk back, apparently meditating an escape. I came up to her and held her hand. She did not resist, but with a stern brow, so strange in childhood, so different from her former hilarity, she stood still, her eyes fixed on the ground. "'What do you do here?' I said gently. "'Who are you?' She was silent, but trembled violently. "'My poor child,' asked Adrian, "'are you alone?' There was a winning softness in his voice that went to the heart of the little girl. She looked at him, then, snatching her hand from me, threw herself into his arms, clinging round his neck, ejaculating, "'Save me! Save me!' while her unnatural sullenness dissolved in tears. "'I will save you,' he replied. "'Of what are you afraid? You need not fear my friend. He will do you no harm. Are you alone?' "'No, Lion is with me.' "'And your father and mother?' I never had any. I am a charity girl. Everybody is gone, gone for a great, great many days. But if they come back and find me out, they will beat me so. Her unhappy story was told in these few words. An orphan, taken on pretended charity, ill-treated and reviled, her oppressors had died, and knowing of what had passed around her, she found herself alone. She had not dared venture out, but by the continuance of her solitude her courage revived, her childish vivacity caused her to play a thousand freaks, and with her brute companion she passed a long holiday, fearing nothing but the return of the harsh voices and cruel usage of her protectors. She readily consented to go with Adrian. In the meantime, while we descanted on alien sorrows, and on a solitude which struck our eyes and not our hearts, while we imagined all of change and suffering that had intervened in these once-thronged streets, before, tenantless and abandoned, they became mere kennels for dogs and stables for cattle, while we read the death of the world upon the dark fane, and hugged ourselves in the remembrance that we possessed that which was all the world to us, in the meanwhile, we had arrived from Windsor early in October, and had now been in London about six weeks. Day by day, during that time, the health of my Idris declined. Her heart was broken, neither sleep nor appetite, the chosen servants of health, waited on her wasted form. To watch her children hour by hour, to sit by me, drinking deep the dear persuasion that I remained to her, was all her pastime. Her vivacity so long assumed, her affectionate display of cheerfulness, her light-hearted tone and springy gait were gone. I could not disguise to myself, nor could she conceal, her life-consuming sorrow. Still, change of scene and reviving hopes might restore her. I feared the plague only, and she was untouched by that. I had left her this evening, reposing after the fatigues of her preparations. Clara sat beside her, relating a story to the two boys. The eyes of Idris were closed, but Clara perceived a sudden change in the appearance of our eldest darling. His heavy lids veiled his eyes, an unnatural colour burnt in his cheeks, his breath became short. Clara looked at the mother. She slept, yet started at the pause the narrator made. Fear of awaking and alarming her caused Clara to go on at the eager call of Evelyn, who was unaware of what was passing. Her eyes turned alternately from Alfred to Idris. With trembling accents she continued her tale, till she saw the child about to fall. Starting forward she caught him, and her cry roused Idris. She looked on her son. She saw death stealing across his features. She laid him on a bed. She held drink to his parched lips. Yet he might be saved. If I were there, he might be saved. Perhaps it was not the plague. Without a counsellor, what could she do? Stay and behold him die? Why, at that moment, was I away? Look to him, Clara, she exclaimed. I will return immediately. She inquired among those who, selected as the companions of our journey, had taken up their residence in our house. She heard from them merely that I had gone out with Adrian. She entreated them to seek me. She returned to her child. He was plunged in a frightful state of torpor. Again she rushed downstairs. All was dark, desert, and silent. She lost all self-possession. She ran into the street. She called on my name. 
The pattering rain and howling wind alone replied to her. Wild fear gave wings to her feet. She darted forward to seek me. She knew not where, but putting all her thoughts, all her energy, all her being in speed only, most misdirected speed, she neither felt nor feared nor paused, but ran right on, till her strength suddenly deserted her so suddenly that she had not thought to save herself. Her knees failed her, and she fell heavily on the pavement. She was stunned for a time, but at length rose, and though sorely hurt, still walked on, shedding a fountain of tears, stumbling at times, going she knew not whither. Only now and then, with feeble voice, she called my name, adding with heart-piercing exclamations that I was cruel and unkind. Human being there was none to reply, and the inclemency of the night had driven the wandering animals to the habitations they had usurped. Her thin dress was drenched with rain, her wet hair clung round her neck, she tottered through the dark streets, till, striking her foot against an unseen impediment, she again fell. She could not rise, she hardly strove, but, gathering up her limbs, she resigned herself to the fury of the elements, and the bitter grief of her own heart. She breathed an earnest prayer to die speedily, for there was no relief but death. While hopeless of safety for herself, she ceased to lament for her dying child, but shed kindly bitter tears for the grief I should experience in losing her. While she lay, life almost suspended, she felt a warm, soft hand on her brow, and a gentle female voice asked her, with expressions of tender compassion, if she could not rise. That another human being, sympathetic and kind, should exist near, roused her. Half rising with clasped hands and fresh springing tears, she entreated her companion to seek for me, to bid me hasten to my dying child, to save him, for the love of heaven, to save him. The woman raised her, she led her under shelter, she entreated her to return to her home, whither perhaps I had already returned. Idris easily yielded to her persuasions. She leaned on the arm of her friend. She endeavoured to walk on, but irresistible faintness made her pause again and again. Quickened by the increasing storm, we had hastened our return. Our little charge was placed before Adrian on his horse. There was an assemblage of persons under the portico of our house, in whose gestures I instinctively read some heavy change, some new misfortune. With swift alarm, afraid to ask a single question, I leapt from my horse. The spectators saw me, knew me, and in awful silence divided to make way for me. I snatched a light, and rushing upstairs and hearing a groan, without reflection, I threw open the door of the first room that presented itself. It was quite dark, but as I stepped within, a pernicious scent assailed my senses, producing sickening qualms which made their way to my very heart, while I felt my legs clasped, and a groan repeated by the person that held me. I lowered my lamp, and saw a negro, half-clad, writhing under the agony of disease, while he held me with a convulsive grasp. With mixed horror and impatience I strove to disengage myself, and fell on the sufferer. He wound his naked, festering arms round me. His face was close to mine, and his breath, death-laden, entered my vitals. For a moment I was overcome, my head was bowed by aching nausea, till reflection returning I sprung up, threw the wretch from me, and darting up the staircase, entered the chamber usually inhabited by my family. A dim light showed me Alfred on a couch, Clara trembling, and paler than whitest snow, had raised him on her arm, holding a cup of water to his lips. I saw full well that no spark of life existed in that ruined form. His features were rigid, his eyes glazed, his head had fallen back. I took him from her, I laid him softly down, kissed his cold little mouth, and turned to speak in a vain whisper, when loudest sound of thunder-like cannon could not have reached him in his immaterial abode. And where was Idris, that she had gone out to seek me and had not returned, were fearful tidings, while the rain and driving wind clattered against the window and roared round the house. Added to this, the sickening sensation of disease gained upon me. No time was to be lost, if ever I would see her again. I mounted my horse and rode out to seek her, fancying that I heard her voice in every gust, oppressed by fever and aching pain. I rode in the dark and rain through the labyrinthine streets of unpeopled London. My child lay dead at home. The seeds of mortal disease had taken root in my bosom. I went to seek Idris, my adored, now wandering alone while the waters were rushing from heaven like a cataract to bathe her dear head in a chill damp, her fair limbs in numbing cold. 
A female stood on the step of a door and called to me as I galloped past. It was not Idris, so I rode swiftly on, until a kind of second sight, a reflection back again on my senses of what I had seen but not marked, made me feel sure that another figure, thin, graceful and tall, stood clinging to the foremost person who supported her. In a minute I was beside the suppliant. In a minute I received the sinking Idris on my arms. Lifting her up, I placed her on the horse. She had not strength to support herself, so I mounted behind her and held her close to my bosom, wrapping my riding-cloak round her, while her companion, whose well-known but changed countenance, it was Juliette, daughter of the Duke, could at this moment of horror obtain from me no more than a passing glance of compassion. She took the abandoned rein and conducted our obedient steed homewards. Dare I avouch it? That was the last moment of my happiness. But I was happy. Idris must die, for her heart was broken. I must die, for I had caught the plague. Earth was a scene of desolation. Hope was madness. Life had married death. They were one. But thus supporting my fainting love, thus feeling that I must soon die, I revelled in the delight of possessing her once more. Again and again I kissed her and pressed her to my heart. We arrived at our home, I assisted her to dismount, I carried her upstairs, and gave her into Clara's care, that her wet garments might be changed. Briefly I assured Adrian of her safety, and requested that we might be left to repose. As the miser, who with trembling caution visits his treasure to count it again and again, so I numbered each moment, and grudged every one that was not spent with Idris. I returned swiftly to the chamber where the life of my life reposed. Before I entered the room I paused for a few seconds. For a few seconds I tried to examine my state. Sickness and shuddering ever and anon came over me. My head was heavy, my chest depressed, my legs bent under me, but I threw off resolutely the swift-growing symptoms of my disorder, and met Idris with placid and even joyous looks. She was lying on a couch, carefully fastening the door to prevent all intrusion. I sat by her, we embraced, and our lips met in a kiss, long drawn and breathless. Would that moment had been my last! Maternal feeling now awoke in my poor girl's bosom, and she asked, "'And Alfred?' "'Idris,' I replied, "'we are spared to each other, we are together. Do not let any other idea intrude. I am happy even on this fatal night. I declare myself happy beyond all name, all thought. What would you more, sweet one?' Idris understood me. She bowed her head on my shoulder and wept. "'Why?' she again asked. "'Do you tremble, Anne? What shakes you thus?' "'Well, may I be shaken,' I replied, "'happy as I am.' Our child is dead, and the present hour is dark and ominous. Well may I tremble, but I am happy, mine own Idris, most happy. I understand thee, my kind love, said Idris, thus pale as thou art with sorrow at our loss, trembling and aghast, thou wouldest assuage my grief by thy dear assurances. I am not happy. And the tears flashed and fell from under her downcast lids, for we are inmates of a miserable prison, and there is no joy for us. But the true love I bear you will render this and every other loss endurable. We have been happy together, at least, I said. No future misery can deprive us of the past. We have been true to each other for years, ever since my sweet princess love came through the snow to the lowly cottage of the poverty-stricken heir of the ruined Verney. Even now that eternity is before us, we take hope only from the presence of each other. Idris, do you think that when we die we shall be divided? Die? When we die? What mean you? What secret lies hid from me in those dreadful words? Must we not all die, dearest? I asked with a sad smile. Gracious God, are you ill, Lionel, that you speak of death? My only friend, heart of my heart, speak. I do not think, replied I, that we have any of us long to live, and when the curtain drops on this mortal scene, where, think you, we shall find ourselves? Idris was calmed by my unembarrassed tone and look. She answered, You may easily believe that during this long progress of the plague I have thought much on death, and asked myself, now that all mankind is dead to this life, to what other life they may have been born, Hour after hour I have dwelt on these thoughts, and strove to form a rational conclusion concerning the mystery of a future state. 
What a scarecrow, indeed, would death be, if we were merely to cast aside the shadow in which we now walk, and stepping forth into the unclouded sunshine of knowledge and love, revived with the same companions, the same affections, and reached the fulfilment of our hopes, leaving our fears with our earthly vesture in the grave. Alas, the same strong feeling which makes me sure that I shall not wholly die, makes me refuse to believe that I shall live wholly as I do now. Yet, Lionel, never, never can I love any but you." Through eternity I must desire your society, and as I am innocent of harm to others, and as relying and confident as my mortal nature permits, I trust that the ruler of the world will never tear us asunder. Your remarks are like yourself, dear love, replied I, gentle and good. Let us cherish such a belief, and dismiss anxiety from our minds, but sweet we are so formed, and there is no sin, if God made our nature, to yield to what he ordains. We are so formed that we must love life and cling to it, we must love the living smile, the sympathetic touch and thrilling voice, peculiar to our mortal mechanism. Let us not through security and hereafter neglect the present. This present moment, short as it is, is a part of eternity, and the dearest part since it is our own unalienably. Thou, the hope of my futurity, art my present joy. Let me then look on thy dear eyes, and reading love in them, drink intoxicating pleasure. Timidly, for my vehemence somewhat terrified her, Idris looked on me. My eyes were bloodshot, starting from my head, every artery beat, methought, audibly, every muscle throbbed, each single nerve felt. Her look of wild affright told me that I could no longer keep my secret. So it is, mine own beloved, I said, the last hour of many happy ones is arrived, nor can we shun any longer the inevitable destiny. I cannot live long, but again and again, I say, this moment is ours." Paler than marble, with white lips and convulsed features, Idris became aware of my situation. My arm, as I sat, encircled her waist. She felt the palm burn with fever, even on the heart it pressed. One moment, she murmured, scarce audibly. Only one moment. She kneeled, and hiding her face in her hands, uttered a brief but earnest prayer that she might fulfil her duty and watch over me to the last. While there was hope, the agony had been unendurable. All was now concluded. Her feelings became solemn and calm. Even as Epicarus, unperturbed and firm, submitted to the instruments of torture, did Idris, suppressing every sigh and sign of grief, enter upon the endurance of torments, of which the rack and the wheel are but faint and metaphysical symbols. I was changed. The tight-drawn cord that sounded so harshly was loosened, the moment that Idris participated in my knowledge of our real situation. The perturbed and passion-tossed waves of thought subsided, leaving only the heavy swell that kept right on without any outward manifestation of its disturbance, till it should break on the remote shore towards which I rapidly advanced. "'It is true that I am sick,' I said, "'and your society, my Idris, is my only medicine. Come and sit beside me.' She made me lie down on the couch, and drawing a low ottoman near, sat close to my pillow, pressing my burning hands in her cold palms. She yielded to my feverish restlessness, and let me talk, and talk to me, on subjects strange indeed to beings, who thus looked the last, and heard the last, of what they loved alone in the world. We talked of times gone by, of the happy period of our early love, of Raymond, Perdita, and Evadne. We talked of what might arise on this desert earth, if two or three being saved, it were slowly repeopled. We talked of what was beyond the tomb, and man in his human shape being nearly extinct, we felt with certainty of faith that other spirits, other minds, other perceptive beings, sightless to us, must people with thought and love this beauteous and imperishable universe. We talked I know not how long, but, in the morning, I awoke from a painful heavy slumber. The pale cheek of Idris rested on my pillow. The large orbs of her eyes half raised the lids, and showed the deep blue lights beneath. Her lips were unclosed, and the slight murmurs they formed told that, even while asleep, she suffered. If she were dead, I thought, what difference, now that form is the temple of a residing deity? Those eyes are the windows of her soul, all grace, love, and intelligence are throned on that lovely bosom. Were she dead, where would this mind, the dearer half of mine, be? For quickly the fair proportion of this edifice would be more defaced than are the sand-choked ruins of the desert temples of Palmyra.
End of chapter 2.